Hello, and thanks for listening to the Hammerslay Inquisition, the world's most self-indulgent interview show. I am Jason Hammerslay, and now that this show has been on the air for a few weeks, I've begun to hear from the critics out there, which is, I guess, what you have to expect when you try to do something creative. I am reminded of that Kurt Vonnegut quote, who said, as for literary criticism in general, I have long felt that any reviewer who expresses rage and loathing for a novel or a play or a poem is preposterous. He or she is like a person who has put on full armor and attacked a hot fudge sundae or a banana split. So, you know, I hear they say the jokes aren't funny and the conversations are too exclusive. The host does this weird thing with the cadence of his voice where he sounds like a little bit like William Shatner. And that's just the stuff coming from my own head. So the most insightful critique so far came from one of my erstwhile guests who astutely pointed out off the air that the circumscribed format of this show is a transparent attempt to dominate the conversation by dictating its terms. And I admit there is more than a glimmer of truth to that accusation. I have struggled, as I think we all have, maybe me more than most, to reckon with my need to control other people's perception of me. My extremely uptight and regimented approach to everything, including this podcast project, is a perhaps futile attempt to seize control over a chaotic world. And I don't have a solution to that problem, to the extent that it poses a challenge to my listeners anyway, since it seems an imposition to insist that all my guests develop their own personalized rubric for grilling me. The best I could do is invite today's guest, who is both naturally inquisitive and professionally critical. His name is Eric R. Danton. He's a former colleague at the University of Rochester in the Campus Times. He's a fraternity brother and my go-to journalism and writing expert. His pop culture expertise has been featured in Paste Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone, and The Hartford Current, the oldest continuously published newspaper in the United States, I might add. He joins me now via Skype from Barcelona, Spain, where he doesn't run with bulls because he doesn't take any bullshit. (laughs) Hi, Eric. Hello, Jason. I'm actually in Madrid, Spain, but, you know, it's all Spain. Unless you're a Catalan separatist, in which case they're very, very different. All right. Well, already you're you're schooling me. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway... It's getting late where you are, so let's get right to the Q and T and A. Questions and answers. Eric, one might say that you are conventionally tall, dark, and handsome. What do you think dark refers to there? Do you think it's appearance like swarthiness or personality like antisocial deviance? I've never thought that much about it. I suppose... It probably refers to swarthiness. I have dark hair. Well, it's increasingly lightening as it gets grayer. Uh, I have an olive complexion, I suppose. But, you know, the other definition fits, too. You fit right in in Spain, then, where there are probably lots of tall, dark, handsome men, right? There are not that many tall men, but I otherwise am sometimes mistaken for a Spaniard, yes, in that I have sort of darker skin, uh, darker hair, uh, and I can manage to give directions to the nearest bakery pretty much wherever I am. That's excellent. Uh, If there were a Spanish immersion course that took place in a bakery, I would be fluent in like a week. Your accredited name in all of your bylines 
is Eric R. Danton. As a professional writer, aren't you a little embarrassed that it's not grammatically correct? <laughs> if only my middle name was Is. Right. Shouldn't it be Eric Is Danton? It should be. The root of me using a middle initial in my byline dates back to the Campus Times, actually. Do, do you remember this, or were you around for this? I don't remember there being another Eric Danton on staff. Well, there was not another Eric Danton, but uh, I was Eric R. Danton on the masthead. But my byline was Eric Danton. And the editor-in-chief, he decreed that they should be consistent. And so I added the R to my byline, and it's been there ever since. Well, how about that? Small decisions, the butterfly effect. (laughs) Well, speaking of history, is it true that you appeared briefly in an episode of How I Met Your Mother? That is true. I was at the very end of an episode in the background at McLaren's Pub. When your kids ask you how you met their mother, what will you tell them? I will say I went to college with one of her best friends from high school. And if they were to reboot that sitcom based on your story... Do you think I could somehow meet Colby Smulders? I don't see why not, though I didn't really meet her, so there's not much I can do for you there, I'm afraid. Allison Hannigan was super nice, though. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. I'm a Buffy fan. She's very sweet. Your wife, speaking of your wife, is an expert on Spanish language and culture. Is that correct? That is correct. So this is why you are currently stationed in Madrid? Yes, she is an academic, a college professor, and is currently on sabbatical, and we are here while she does research for her next project. How would you rate your Spanish skills? Well, I would rate them B2, which actually does correspond to a language rubric that is used here to determine what level you would be placed in if you were to take a class. And I know this because I was recently looking for classes to take, and I took an online placement exam. Uh, What that means functionally is that uh, I can get by in Spanish, but I am not fluent. I am conversational. I am conversant. I can generally muddle my way through. Proficient, but not fluent. I know when I'm getting ripped off, but I don't quite know enough to talk my way out of it. We all know about French kissing. How would you describe Spanish kissing? Well, when one greets one's acquaintances here, one gives them a kiss on either cheek, but it's almost more like an air kiss. So I guess that's how I describe it. So there's not necessarily skin-to-skin contact? No, unless you're a teenager making out on a bench in a park. You see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Because but you're not doing any of that. I'm not doing any of that. Nor, not only am I not a teenager, I have no time to sit on benches in parks and make out. Well, have you ever considered entering academia yourself and teaching the international language of love? <laughs> Tenure-track jobs in that field are remarkably scarce. Really? There's, there's, there's no market for teaching love. Well, that's a shame. I think the world needs a little more love instruction. We could all learn a little bit from Eric Denton, I think. What a sensual world that would be. In keeping with this European influence, you have recently embraced soccer, or football, as it is sarcastically called. Now, this is a sport devised and played by people who stubbornly refuse to use their hands, not unlike an entire culture of men who eschew foreplay. Now, I don't actually have a question here. I just felt like I needed to get that off my chest. Well, I I know that uh, you enjoy saying that real men use their hands, but it seems like a real man would know how to do what needs to be done without using his hands. It makes no sense because why would you go into a situation without using all the tools at your disposal. It's like 
it's like playing a guitar without two strings. You mean a uh, a banjo or a, th- a theremin or something? <laughs> Not a guitar without any strings. Yes. Well, I guess my response to that would be to uh, suggest that you watch a video compilation of Lionel Messi, who plays for the club in Barcelona. Uh, and I started to like soccer when I visited Barcelona in 2011 and went to see one of the games. And Messi scored two goals in that particular game, as I recall. You can cut a compilation of, of highlights, sports highlights, so that anyone looks like the best ever at whatever they're doing. But he truly, I think, is the best and watching him, he does stuff that just looks like it's physically impossible. The angles from which he scores goals, he dribbles through crowds of people. He's uh, famous for what is known in English as the nutmeg, which is kicking the ball through someone's legs and then recovering it on the other side. It's just amazing to watch. So I, I recommend messy compilations on YouTube. So you're saying I can enjoy soccer in 10 minutes on YouTube rather than having to sit through an entire hour and a half of the game? The sheer pointlessness of a zero-zero tie. Right. Yes. As regards your spectatorship of real American sports, you have a reputation for heckling. Do you not? In certain circles, I may have. And I you think call that an answer? Probably... Why don't you get your ears checked, Danton? <laughs> uh, we did have some fun times heckling at Rochester. You're totally Rangers. blowing this interview. Danton. Danton. What do you have to say to that? The time Mike Figga stuck his tongue out at us? I do remember that. That was probably the first or second proudest moment of your college career. It's definitely the high point of my heckling career. Well, your penchant for criticism extends to, or perhaps originates from, your vocation as a cultural critic. Is your expertise in popular culture exclusively, or does it extend to unpopular culture as well? Given a lot of the music that I personally like, I would say it's probably unpopular culture more than anything else. Have you considered branching out into medical and microbial cultures? They don't take criticism as well. Have you ever heckled your doctor? Well, I tell you, I'm no fan at all of those strep throat cultures. Yeah, those always leave you kind of gagging, don't they? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hands off my uvula, I say. Yeah, I just don't, I'm, I'm reluctant to heckle anyone who uh, is on the business end of the needle that they need to use to give me a flu shot or whatever else, or draw blood or whatever. Since we're on the topic of criticism, how many stars would you give this podcast so far? Uh, in that I've only heard one episode of it, or do you mean the one that we're recording right this second? The one that you are currently engaged in at this moment. Uh, what's the scale? Five stars, 10 stars, 100 stars? 73 stars. I would give it so far 62 stars out of 73. All right. So there's room for improvement. I'll, yeah. I'll work on that. Okay. Eric, because you are a music expert, the remainder of this segment will consist of a lightning round of popular song title questions. So I will okay. say the name of the song and you answer it as if it were a real question. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. What did I say? You said something about answering the title of popular songs as if they were questions. That is correct. One for one. Who are you? Who, 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 who? I really want to know. Who are you? I'm Jason Hammersley. Who are you? I'm Eric Ardanton. And who do you love? I love my family, my wife and my children. Isn't she lovely? 
She is, as a matter of fact, though she has strep throat at the moment. Ooh, have you seen her? Just now. I hope she's feeling better. I'm sorry to hear that she's sick. Do you believe in love? And more importantly, I, do you believe it's true? I do believe in love. I do believe it's true. Where is the love? It's all around you. All around me? Well, and me. It's all around all of us. Sort of a, a force field of love. I'm pretty sure that's like an Electric Six song. Uh, how deep is your love? I'm trying to remember how deep a fathom is. So let's say my love is 20,000 leagues under the sea deep. That's pretty deep, man. Pretty deep. You're like the deep water horizon of love. <laughs> Do you feel the love tonight? Well, it's still only afternoon here, so not yet. But I can let you know. Yeah, let me know. It's still morning here, so I'd like to get ahead of it if I can. In the meantime, maybe you can tell me, what's love got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it, Jason. Everything? Tina Turner would think so. Ted Turner would think so, too. <laughs> would he? I think he would. Who's Zoom and who? <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that song, by the way. Um, well, have you ever walked through Madrid traffic? They're all zooming each other. Everyone is zooming everyone all the time. Yeah, you got to be careful as pedestrian in those European countries. Yes. At least they drive on the right side of the road here, so it's not like in the UK, where if you look the wrong way, a bus pulls the curtains down on you for good. Why do fools fall in love? I think they can't help it. And what becomes of the brokenhearted? Eventually, they move on. Hopefully, they fall in love again. Maybe they go into insurance. I don't know. <laughs> into insurance? <laughs> it seems like uh, being an actuary is sort of the polar opposite of love, right? So maybe that's... Maybe there should be love insurance. Ooh. I think Amsterdam yeah. might be the right place to try that out. <laughs> <You're a hero>. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere someone is now creating uh, tranches of, of strange investments they don't understand to resell love insurance. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? I wish I knew. Who let the dogs out? The Baja men. See, I have a theory about this. I think that someone had forgotten something in the house, and they dashed back in to get it, and they didn't close the door. And the dogs all got out. Do you really want to hurt me? Never intentionally, Jason. So, should I stay or should I go? Mm, you can stay, but, you know, you'll need to go when it's bedtime. All right. Well, I'll stay around for now, uh, and we'll move on to the next segment, which is questions from the listening audience. Ooh. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience? Oh, God, this is always death. I have questions for you from two different podcasts today because you're a well-rounded renaissance man and you have answers for everybody and everything. So our first question comes to us from the podcast Grammar Girl, Quick and Dirty Tricks for Better Writing, which is actually a member of the Podcast Hall of Fame, uh, despite the fact that I've listened to a bunch of episodes now and I haven't heard anything really dirty in any of them. Anyway, <laughs> a listener named Katie wrote in to ask, how do you show possession to more than one noun? For example, would you say Tom and Jerry's TV show and Ryan and my anniversary? The latter looks so odd that I end up avoiding it entirely and going with a long and less efficient 
Ryan and I are celebrating our anniversary on dot dot dot. What do you think, Eric? Hmm. I think what's technically correct would be Ryan's and my anniversary. But I probably would write around it so I didn't have to use something that looked weird. Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear what the actual grammar girl said? I would. If this is the same grammar girl I used to follow or may still follow on Twitter, I definitely would because I always enjoyed her Twitter feed. Well, according to her, this is an issue of what they call compound possession. And mm-hmm. if the nouns that you're talking about share the item that they possess, then they share the apostrophe. So, for example, if you're talking about Martha Stewart's incarceration for insider trading and Snoop Dogg's incarceration for gun and drug possession, you would, be, you would refer to Martha Stewart's and Snoop Dogg's jail terms. Sure, because it wasn't for the same thing. Right. But if together they were found to have knocked over a Whole Foods and roughed up a cashier, you would refer to Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg's trial. So it would be Tom and Jerry's TV show. So it it all depends on... Ryan and my anniversary. Well, and here's the second part. Mm -hmm. In the second part of Katie's example, she's combining a noun and a possessive pronoun, Ryan's and my... And a single apostrophe apparently can't do the work for both. So you have to say, Ryan's and my anniversary. I was right. You were. Gold star for you. But you kind of have to ask if the question isn't indicative of some deeper unspoken problem in Katie and Ryan's marriage. Do you think (laughs) they're going to make it? I hope they do. After all those song titles about love, I want their love to succeed. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope they pull through. Yeah. And maybe discuss grammar together a little more often than they have been. It brings people together. It does. Our second question is for the podcast Elk Talk, which is almost (laughs) assuredly the premier podcast for people seeking excruciatingly in-depth analysis of elk hunting season. In just 40 minutes of listening, Elk Talk's Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson taught me about bugling, early ruts, staging bulls, and overpressured elk, which I believe is elk that's about to take their PSATs. So they were posed the question, you're always talking about getting away from the roads. How far is far enough? And how far is too far? Now, Eric, you can address the elk-specific aspects of that question if you want, but you can also feel free to apply that more broadly to your own universe of experience. How far is far enough and how far is too far? I was really hoping it was a podcast about talking to elk, but I guess there's no such luck. Well, I only listened to one episode. That that may be a bonus segment. <laughs> the bonus pod is uh, elk translation. Well, I suppose if you want to find elk, you would need to get away from the roads somewhat, because a lot of animals try to stay away from roads. Although you see an awful lot of dead deer by the road. I don't know if elk are smarter than deer in that regard or not. Well, I hope so for the sake of those PSATs. For my own perspective as a music critic, I find getting away from the road is sometimes helpful in terms of finding things to listen to and therefore write or talk about that uh, everyone else is not already writing and talking about. Ah. Off the beaten track a little bit. But you don't want to go too far because you don't want it to be something that no one else is going to care about or relate to. So it's all about finding the balance, and you do that through trial and error, in my experience. 
so the road in your view is the well-worn cliche ridden terrain of your fellow critics and only when you venture off of that path is when you experience true discovery that's right but not so much discovery that you're listening to death metal polka or adult contemporary bagpipe or stuff like that you want to get off the beaten path but not lost in the woods Eric Danton, insightful as always, whether one is hunting for elk or for that next great alt-country band. <laughs> Let's see if you can keep it up during our next segment that I call But Seriously. Ooh. Seriously. And Eric, this just so you know, this isn't a candid discussion of the 1989 Phil Collins solo LP. Although I would argue... That while that album is generally kind of tired and overwrought, I Wish It Would Rain Down holds up as a very good middle-brow blues song. I always did like that song. I thought it was older than 1989, but... Eric Clapton on lead guitar, by the way. Clapton has popped up in some interesting places over the years. Anyway, uh, this isn't about that. This is the part of the show where we get real for a moment or two, try and find some real meaning. And in a break from convention, my question isn't explicitly personal or biographical, although we might take it there, but it is instead a resumption of a conversation that you and I started a long time ago. And that question, in the words of Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? When we started this debate years ago, neither one of us was married, much less parenting, We've since done both. We've since experienced loss. I know long ago you said that's not true, that it's not better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. You said it is better to not go through that pain. Has time changed your point of view or has it confirmed that point of view? First of all, I now have Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It stuck in my head. So if I break into song, I apologize in advance. <laughs> that's fair. And if you happen to answer that question while you're talking about this one, that's even better. I guess the answer is that uh, I have, in fact, changed my mind about that. I still think that that aphorism is something that people say to make themselves feel better. But it is difficult to deny the legitimacy of it. it I think it is better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. You said that you still believe to some extent that it is something people say to make themselves feel better. The implication then is that back in the day, it didn't make you feel better. And so the question then is why or why not? I think I'm trying to remember exactly when our, our conversation or debate started. We were probably in our early 20s, I would guess. Yeah, I think that's about right. Maybe shortly yeah. after college. Probably, yeah. So, I mean, I may have felt this way in college too, but, you know, at the time... I think neither of us was in anything resembling a serious relationship. I think we probably had unrequited crushes. Toxic and, relationships. Yeah. This was before any toxic relationships. I, I remember the unrequited part mostly. And <laughs> I think that was a way of getting past the unrequited part. I really like this person. She does not feel the same way about me. It would be better if I didn't like her at all because then I would not feel this angst or anguish or heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, in your early twenties, there are still 
a lot of things about the world that you have yet to learn. And one of them, I think, that I have learned over the years is that, you know, to, to throw another cliche out there, there are plenty of fish in the sea. And if your unrequited crush on this particular person has come to nothing, there will be other people, and some of them are bound to like you back. Eventually, maybe, yeah. My belief that <laughs> it was better to not have loved at all was too rigid, too extreme, maybe. And I think the counter to... Alfred Lord Tennyson's aphorism is that ignorance is bliss. So if you don't know what you're missing, you're better off. And so by this logic, you reject that idea as well, right? I do, but because in this context, you may not really know what you're missing, but you can imagine it. You have this idea of what you are missing. So if, if, it's a perfect vacuum and you genuinely don't know what you are missing, maybe it's better, but we all have imaginations. We can all imagine what we are missing. This person does not like me back. Therefore I am missing out on whatever happiness or bliss or whatever I would be feeling if there were a mutual attraction, if there were some kind of relationship from this, but there is no living in a vacuum like that. There is no living in a way that you would not be able to imagine what, it would be like, um, and so I think to say that ignorance is bliss in that sense is is just another way of fooling yourself. It's it's not really bliss because it's almost more like ignorance is a way of torturing yourself about it. You know, if only this person liked me back, things would be so great. Well, you don't actually know that, and you are projecting a lot of things or assuming a lot of things. Um, I think sometimes it's just better to except that in this particular case, the loving and losing is, or loving or not loving or whatever is, is it's not going your way and to move on. Well, wise words. Uh, I hope that Katie and Ryan from Grammar Girl are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Now that we've come to the end of my questions, it's time for me to submit myself to the Inquisition, and it's time for Eric to turn the tables. <laughs> Turn the tables. It isn't often that I speak with a professional interviewer, so I am both excited and scared to find out what kind of interrogation you have up your sleeve. So, what do you got? <laughs> well, in that we were talking about uh, a conversation that we have had intermittently over the years, uh, I thought it would be interesting to draw another topic that we've talked about some over the years, which was, I recall... I don't remember exactly when this happened either, probably also in our early 20s, because we used to have a lot of late night metro rides to talk about this sort of stuff. But we, we had a lot of free time back then. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. It's funny how uh, being married with children sort of eats into that free time a little bit. Someone should do a study. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember that at a certain point, it almost seemed like an article of faith for you that eventually your friends, who in many cases I think were our friends, would at some point drift away. And that I'm not sure if we ever got to the point of, of what that would look like or that then we would be friendless or we just would fall out of touch with people who had meant a lot to us up to a certain point in our lives. But I'm curious what the root of that idea was and how your perspective on it has changed over the years. I have to admit, I don't remember saying or thinking that or having that as like a central part of my philosophy. 
But I, I also have to admit that it does sound like something that I would have said or thought. <laughs> so I will certainly accept the premise of your question. I can only speculate why I said it in the first place, what was motivating me. And I think the most likely explanation is that it was probably uttered at a time when I was feeling lonely or rejected, which I was a lot in my early 20s, at least. And honestly, I probably just wanted reassurance from you or whomever else I was around that I, I wasn't going to be abandoned because I, I felt a lot of anxiety about it. And, you know, you can certainly add to that what seemed like a, a mad rush to the altar for most of my friends after college, most of our friends. You know, there I was going to all these weddings without a date, by the way watching everyone pair up and prepare to start a new life, perhaps with children who would, by necessity, usurp me as the person needing care and feeding. And the idea, and, and the idea was probably precipitated, and I think to some extent validated by the understanding that eventually friends cease being the center of our lives mm -hmm. the way they typically are between the ages of i don't know 15 and 30 let's say sure i mean that's like that wasn't that the whole premise of the tv show friends that during that time of your life your friends are your family and i think it's clear especially now given everything i've said on the podcast that I had and have really strong attachments to my high school friends. And despite everyone's best efforts and intentions, we all grew up and apart. And then after college, it happened with my friends from college too. I mean, the last time I saw you in person, I think, was your wedding. I think how, that's true. How long ago was that? Eight years in June. That's a long time. It is. And... And let's not forget, I was also on the excretory end of two spectacularly failed long-distance romantic relationships. So I think a little mild cynicism is justifiable. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm kind of talking myself into it a little bit. <laughs> I mean, there definitely was a, a bit of a stampede toward the altar uh, among a lot of our circle when we were in our 20s and early 30s, I think. And eventually it dawned on me that people have to grow up. You know, I think if my, if my thinking has evolved at all, it's the understanding that drifting apart is kind of a good thing because people, people need space to grow and space creates distance and something that doesn't grow is something that isn't alive. And so if people didn't drift apart after a while, you end up with Ross Geller on Friends after season four. <laughs> and nobody wants to be friends with Ross Geller. Nobody wants to be Ross Geller in season no. four of Friends. But I suppose that some of this, I think, is a, is a matter of definitions. You know, what we mean by drifting apart. Because, um, so, it, you know, it's true that we don't spend every 4th of July and Super Bowl weekend together as like we used to do when I used to make frequent trips to D.C. to, to hang out and to be part of the, the fabric there. But uh, I think 
though our relationships among each other or with one another or as a, a group of friends or whatever, I think they have changed. They have, let's say, evolved, but I'm not sure that they have they have drifted in, in a way that means that we're no longer close or that we're no longer in each other's lives. Well, we're still friends and we're still in each other's lives. And I treasure the fact that time zone appropriately, I can always chat you up online. But on those rare occasions when some of us do get together, whether I'm there or not, I'm happy, but I'm also wistful just because it's so much rarer than it used to be. And and I think that's what I was getting at. I hope that's what I was getting at those many years ago when I was whining about this. I don't <laughs> think I assumed that you all would totally leave me and forget about me and never talk to me again. I don't think I ever believed that unless I was in the very depths of acute depression. And maybe what I was preemptively mournful of or guarded against is not losing those people, but losing that moment in my life, which is kind of funny considering how miserable I was most of the time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, dealing with the inevitable drift is just like another part of the, the grieving process for our youth. And once, sure. you, once you achieve acceptance, it's about making the most of the time that you have. So I would say that, you know, Jason 20 years ago probably needs to lighten up a little bit, but he's on the right track. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think maybe some of that, the wistfulness is something that I dealt with somewhat at the time just because I didn't live in the same city as you guys. And so, you know, I would come down a couple times a year, a few times a year and have a great time and then have to leave yeah. while you guys would continue to get together to do whatever the things you did, watch sports or, you know, go to baseball games or go, I don't know, apple picking or whatever the hell you guys did back then. <laughs> And I would yeah. be in a different life in a different city. And so I was not part of that process in the same way. Well, a lot of credit to you for keeping it going as long as you did. You know, I, I think you know this, but those years when you were coming down to D.C. for the Super Bowl each year, staying at my place, even in my tiny little studio apartment, that was like the highlight of my year every year. And the hour after the Super Bowl, when everyone would go home and you and I would be cleaning up because I had to go back to work the next day and you had to catch a plane back to Hartford, that was always a big crash, a big come down for me. And, you know, it's moments like that that I probably uttered this thing about friends drifting away. But obviously, I loved it. And the fact that it's lost now, I mean, to harken back to our earlier question, I think it's better having had those moments and lost them than never having had them at all. So anyway, good times, good times. Good times. All right. Well, that was a good question, Eric. Thank you for that one. It's time to uh, lighten up with a bit of a palate cleanser, though. It's time for word association. All right.
All right, you know the drill. I'm going to list 10 words without context, one at a time, and you just give me the first word or phrase that comes to your mind. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Back. Front. Smoke. Jacket. Oh, stylish. <laughs> Red. Black. Mountain. Top. Yeah, you've, you've done a bit of mountain climbing in your day, no? A little bit, yeah. But not like Tom Cruise rappelling off the side of a cliff, right? No, nothing very technical, just walk-ups, basically. But uh, my dad and I used to do some hiking in Latin America, and we would hike up some fairly steep mountains here and there. Foot. Ball. Obviously. <laughs> Goal. Post. Despacito. <laughs> Justin Bieber. <laughs> Rock. And roll. Hartford. Connecticut. I really thought I was going to get something more <clears throat> critical there. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of happy to hear that you uh, that it wasn't. I will admit one. that the second thing that popped into my head was much more critical. Okay, what was the second thing that popped into your head? Don't live there anymore. <laughs> okay. I thought you were going to stop after don't live there. <laughs> All right, last one. Boom. Fizz. I don't know why fizz, but... That's onomatopoeia. Yeah. All right, that's that. Now it's time for everyone to get their hankies out because it's time for the segment that's half eulogy, half apology. I call it eulopologies. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right. Eric Danton is a specialist. And specialists get kind of a bad rap sometimes because there's an assumption that they're otherwise limited in some way. Now, Eric is as much of a renaissance man as anyone else. He knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff, and he's curious and thoughtful, plenty of talents. But when you're particularly good at a specific thing, you get to be a specialist. And specialists are really important because you can't make a movie without a key grip, and you can't win baseball games without a relief ace, and you can't have a newspaper without a copy editor, although the New York Times is trying. <laughs> we have our own specialists in our lives, not just like dry cleaners and podiatrists, but I mean our friends too. We have the friend we complain to at work and the friend that we go to heavy metal concerts with or the friend who bails us out of jail. As I mentioned up top, Eric is my resident expert on writing style and popular music, but his real specialty and the reason I love him most is because he is my personal bomb squad. Let me explain that. I consider myself a decent, even-keeled, morally upright guy, but like everyone else, there are times when anxiety builds up and I need to release that pressure in the form of 
anger or misanthropy or awful jokes, usually all three at once. I got your back. (laughs) You do. You do have my back because sometimes I need to say these things, things that reveal my primitive and embarrassing humanity, things that I would be reluctant to share with anyone who might think less of me afterward. These words and thoughts are toxic explosives that need to be detonated in a safe area where they're not going to hurt anybody. And so I need someone who is not only completely trustworthy, but who knows me well enough not to hold it against me. And, and just as important, maybe more important, someone who is able to play along and humor me and make me feel less alone. And Eric, you're that guy for me. Here's an example. In 2001, uh, my long-distance then-girlfriend dumped me after taking up with one of my friends on the night before I was supposed to fly up to visit her. I was, you know, classically devastated in the way that only emotionally fragile boys can be. And you're, you're the first person I called. And on a whim, I changed my ticket from Rochester to Hartford, Connecticut, where you were living. And I was a mess, just a giant hairball of fury and self-loathing, ready to go to some very dark places. I was a, I was a ticking bomb. And if you hadn't invited me to sleep on your couch, I honestly don't know what would have happened. Nothing good. You stayed with me and you listened to my ranting and raving and you indulged my my vengeful fantasies (laughs) without judging me and you prevented me from getting into at least one fist fight. It must have been like looking after a feral cat. So... Thank you, Eric, for being that guy, for being my bomb squad, the guy to defuse me. And thanks specifically for that weekend. And I'm sorry if I have any apologies for you. I'm sorry that you got stuck with so much of that fallout, which lasted well beyond that weekend, by the way. I don't know what I would do without you, where I would be without you. uh, But I think, ironically accompanying me to those dark places kept me out of the really dark places. So uh, I just can't thank you enough for that. I'm honored that it's a role that I could play. And I remember that weekend, not the fistfight part, but I believe we went to a New Britain Rock Cats game. and Those cats rock. Yeah, it was at the Rock Cats game where I saw someone who looked like and I wanted to go fight him. And you talked me out of it. <laughs> that was probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In retrospect, yes. Well, thus ends the Hammersley Inquisition of Eric R. Danton. Thank you for being a good sport, Eric. Thank you for Danton. your thoughtful questions. And Danton. <laughs> Well, now that we've talked about how we haven't seen each other in almost eight years, we'll have to find a baseball game to go do and heckle the hell out of somebody. (laughs) 
you know, they have softball games down here on the mall. We can always just go to one of those games. <laughs> it may be your best chance to heckle someone at the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you to all the listeners out there. If you have any comments, questions, compliments, or complaints, you can reach out to me at hammerslay at gmail.com. You can also now sign up for my email newsletter, which I will be using to roll out the episode each week and give you the very latest in Hammerslay-related content. You can subscribe by going to buttondown.email. Yes, that's .email slash Hammerslay. Main title theme generously provided by Jason Menkes at Copilot Music and Sound. All opinions and bad jokes are solely my own and do not represent the views of my employer, my family, my friends, and especially my guests. Until next time, my name is... Jason Hammersley? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> the Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay.